This is a Federal News Network podcast. You're listening to the Space Hour here on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White. To say the space industry is on the up and up is no longer a bold statement, but it helps when you have the data and research to back it up. One of those able to do so is Mahak Sarang. She's a research associate with the Harvard Business School, where she's been helping investigate trends and practices of new space companies. I had the chance to pick her brain about what they've been finding. The shift that happened is that the old way that space was managed was by basically NASA comes up with these visions, right? So a vision for going to the moon, of creating a space shuttle to have routine access to space, of creating an international space station. And what they do is that they come together in these different organizations. They have centers all around the country and they contract out the development of a lot of the hardware that they need, and then they own that hardware. So in the past, what would happen is they would work very closely with contractors like Boeing or Lockheed Martin, um, and they would have these types of contracts where schedules would get delayed and costs would just balloon and balloon because they were contracting the development of very bespoke hardware and not the provision of services. So they would say that we need these kinds of parts to develop a space shuttle, can you do it? And like Boeing, Lockheed, whatever, they would come together and work on that. Um, And it was a really inefficient, costly way to work with industry partners because these industry partners, they didn't really have an incentive to do anything faster or cheaper because NASA was the only customer and NASA didn't have that many providers, right? So they didn't have anywhere else to go. They were kind of locked into these um, particular industry players. And eventually what happened is that, especially in launch services, there was a duopoly that formed between Boeing and Lockheed that were like the only one, the only players in the US market that were able to provide commercial launch services to orbit. And the cost of launch was exorbitant. And it was just like NASA just kind of like stomached it because they needed to get things up to the International Space Station. So what happened more recently is that we have these kind of, and it's usually, you know, very wealthy individuals who have access to private capital and are able to look at this problem and say, hey, I think we can do it better. So Elon Musk is a good example, Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson. There are these individuals who have come in and decided that instead of offering you know their services as contractors they're going to develop services and sell those to nasa with the intent that although nasa will be an initial and important first customer they want to be able to offer and sell those services to other future commercial customers so the way that we've seen things shift and change is first of all these companies have more stomach for risk so they're able to kind of have faster development cycles because SpaceX doesn't really care if they blow up a rocket on the launch pad every other week. You know, that's not a huge PR disaster for a private company. If NASA was doing that, that would be a huge PR disaster. Um, They have the ability to kind of work uh, on timelines that are different because they're not beholden to NASA schedules. They're not beholden to NASA reviews, really. Um, NASA takes a different approach in the ways in which they review the safety Um, and like risks associated with these projects. Um, So there's just a lot of differences in like the ways in which these projects are being developed and managed. And then the the hardware itself is also totally different. We're seeing a lot of vertical integration in the industry. So these companies, instead of 
usually what would happen is like Lockheed itself is one contractor, but then all of the subsystems and parts that go into um, you know, a rocket, they would be contracted out to all these different contractors, tiny contractors. Sometimes they're responsible for like one or two parts. And like, that's what they do. There's like a company out in Tennessee that like, that's all they do is manufacture one or two parts. And like, that's been their whole business because they know that NASA will be a customer and Lockheed will be a customer. But now you see companies like SpaceX that are kind of taking the whole rocket and developing every single part. They're using things like 3D printing to be able to do that faster. Um, but it's just a totally different way of developing hardware. Yeah. And on that point specifically, even though you're saying a lot more companies are building their own things, um, the smaller contractors are still playing a pretty big role. Uh, has, has your analysis looked at that or are you mostly just looking at the big players? Yeah, for now, we're looking more at the big players. So the smaller contractors, yeah, that will still be important. Um, we are looking at smaller firms that are coming up too. Companies like Made in Space that are working on developing in-space manufacturing, um, small startups that are developing really innovative small launchers or suborbital vehicles. Um, so those companies, they're also like part of this new space realm. And that's kind of where our, our research focuses. Our research is more on these new companies and how they are really developing like commercial business cases, right? So they're not just reliant on one customer. They're thinking about the future of space and what kinds of services will be needed to be provided. And a lot of times you see is like, you know, right now we're de develop we're dealing with a market that is so nascent and so future facing that you have to kind of come up with terrestrial means of developing um, these revenue streams that allow you to do really good tech development and position you in a place to be ready to to provide services that will be needed once we're starting have to start to have like a robust commercial low earth orbit economy or a robust access to the lunar surface and then you can imagine there'll be an explosion of um you know these new companies and services after there are people on the moon or people orbiting in low earth orbit or people going to suborbital space more often what are some of the other similarities that you all found in the way that these companies started out and also in the Silicon Valley companies and some of them, you know, kind of fall under the same uh, tree of ownership. Uh, but, you know, what what yeah. were some of the ways that you know, obviously a lot of the companies that that are out there already, uh, this was kind of the next logical step was to just look up because most of their their uh, companies are already involved in so much space hardware and they they use a lot of, uh, you know, satellites for Internet and all that sort of thing. What what are the other ways that uh, you've seen those same similar practices kind of transfer over to the space market? Yeah, so I think it's like it's pulling on Silicon Valley ethos, but it's also just people who are not inundated with the ways in which old space functions. So if you talk to people who have been working on NASA projects, generally engineers work on one or two projects their entire lives. They are have been working on a satellite that takes 10 years to develop, or they have been working on the International Space Station, which is, you know, that that took 20 years. And that's a problem because you're not doing a lot of learning and extrapolating to actually thinking about developing systems and processes for creating, um, you know, economies of scale. What you see in new space is that there's just a different ethos. Like there, there are people who have an appetite for building and breaking and moving on to the next thing. And I think it's really cool to meet young engineers in new space because they've like worked on 
multiple rockets. They've worked on multiple satellites. They've like, you know, a lot of them come from different backgrounds, different industries, not even coming from the space industry. So they aren't used to kind of like all of the different, like if you think about the project life cycle in space, it's like crazy how many reviews and all these different kinds of, um, you know, practices, practices that have been built into the industry just through heritage. And a lot of these engineers like haven't had that experience and are kind of looking at it with really fresh eyes and saying, okay, like, do we need all of these different, um, you know, parts? Do we need to have like all of these different um, systems in place or can we accept more risk? Land, try just try landing on the moon, right? Like there's people who are building landers right now who are like, if it breaks, when it gets there, it's fine because we'll have another launch opportunity in a year or two, which is just an ethos that did not exist in the past. So it's like much less of like a, we have one opportunity, we have to make the most out of it. It's more of, okay, let's say that we have many opportunities because the constant launch is going down and has been going down. And let's just try to get something up there as soon as possible, prove some things out and then learn, learn as much as we can for the next thing. Just, it's exciting because there's more opportunities to fail and then try again and have data collected. So like even the act of landing on the moon the amount of data that's collected from the landing itself in terms of, you know, like the dust ejecta that's coming off, like people developing algorithms for precision landing. So they're avoiding certain features on the moon. We just like have not had the ability to land on the moon that many times. The U.S. hasn't had a rover there, you know, in a decade. So in this upcoming decade, we will have uh, what are the, called the commercial lander um, payload services. And it's a set of different companies throughout the U.S. who are working on developing cargo landers and have been contracted by NASA to deliver these payloads to the lunar surface. And we're going to have, you know, like five or six landers in the next couple of years. And that's unprecedented. And like the amount of data you're getting just from like getting into the orbit, doing the transfer, um, you know, getting onto the surface, like moving around, all of that is going to be really amazing. Let's talk potential. Um you know, space manufacturing is something that most people don't think about when, uh, you know, you're, you're, it's kind of, it's kind of, well, I, you know, maybe it's not the right word, but kind of incestuous, right? You're, you're, you're going up into space to build things that you're going to use in space and, you know, an industry kind of cropped up from that. What, what's the idea behind that and, and the potential for growth there? Between, uh, behind in space manufacturing? Yes, correct. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I think in space manufacturing isn't, interesting one so if you look at i don't know the people create these roadmaps right for the space industry and it's the development of a completely new market and on earth those markets develop much more organically so you can imagine you know in the settlement of the us when you like build the railroad then the towns around the railroads crop up and then there's services that are required etc cetera, etc cetera. So with the space industry, our provision, like, you know, the quote unquote railroad is now being developed and that's routine access to space thanks to companies like SpaceX and Blue Origin. And the next steps are living and working in space. So when we think about in space manufacturing, that's going to be a pretty critical part of the next step of development in the space economy. When you think about the problems with making things for space, one of the biggest constraints that you have is that, first of all, it's like mass, right? So like the amount of stuff that you're sending up 
it just gets more costly for every kilogram. A kilogram to space is like already 12 grand or 14 grand. So if you want to build any sort of large structure, that's a lot of money right there, just in the mass. But then on top of that, designing structures that can fit into the nose cone of a launch vehicle is incredibly complex. And it's like this origami, you know, kind of puzzle piece that you have to put together. And then going into space and putting the pieces together is a whole other situation. The International Space Station relied on very highly trained astronauts as labor to do that work. And now we're trying to think about, okay, that's a huge cost and risk to be sending people up, up and in, out into space to manufacture and put together large structures. So instead, what if you had a printer in space that was able to just extrude structures and, you know, create habitats in space or create manufacturing environments in space or create, you know, different cargo environments in space or even spit out satellites in space? That is totally, that would totally revolutionize like the amount of things and services that you're able to provide in orbit just because you're no longer constrained by the launch environment. You're no longer constrained by the fact that you have to fit these things into very, very constrained spaces in a launch vehicle. Um, yeah. And you're able to like create structures without humans being involved. That would be pretty amazing. So I think with in-space manufacturing, the first step is proving that we're able to build in a different way in space. I think people are also excited about the prospect of building things in space for use on Earth. But again, I would say that's kind of out of necessity for the fact that this is such a nascent and future-facing market that you have to find terrestrial means of revenue. So I think that's more of like a use case for in-space manufacturing of, you know, there's people who are very excited about developing uh, an alternative for fiber optic cables using a very specific type of material called Zeebland, which when you manufacture it in space and in, in microgravity, it has many less imperfections, fewer imperfections, and then has fewer losses when you're uh, using it for fiber optic cable. But again, the cost of launch is so high that developing anything in space and then bringing it back down is very expensive. So any terrestrial alternative would be preferential right now. So I don't know, I think that that's like a little bit further off, but there's a huge need for in-space manufacturing to unlock the kind of next step in space exploration and space habitats and that kind of thing. So realizing that is why many of the companies have been focusing on the space launch service uh, aspect of things because just the, the simple act of getting up there is, is by far the most complex part, I imagine. Totally. Yeah. Earth's gravity is relentless. <laughs> yeah. And with those costs now, I know, now I know why astronauts tend to be on the smaller side. <laughs> yeah. 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 Astronauts are on the, and they're very expensive. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Launching humans is an expensive business and keeping them alive. For sure. A lot of hard work there. Uh, <laughs> um, so yeah. in interviewing, um, you know, people on the, in the private sector and um, government officials, they are, there seems to be a lot of willingness to work together to make sure because everybody knows that there's a lot of potential here for both parties to kind of be able to thrive in this arena. 
Um, what can, I guess we can start with, with the government side of things. What can they do to foster a healthy industry that isn't run rampant because, you know, obviously you don't want this thing saturated with companies that, you know, make things unreliable and, um, but also you want to, as you said before, you want to have many players in the game so that you have this innovation and competition. Yeah. So governments, I mean, there's governments all around the world that are working on this problem. I will speak from a U.S. perspective. Um, I think the biggest thing in the U.S. is continuity of purpose. And that's a phrase that I believe was used by the NASA HQ headquarter folks from Obama's um, year. So basically, you know, NASA comes up with these plans, but then when there's a new president, our priorities shift. And so we went from under George Bush having, you know, a priority on developing the International Space Station and then going on to Mars to under Obama, the Mars program getting canceled, like a whole launch vehicle program getting canceled and then thinking, focusing on going to asteroids and then going from to Trump, who has now, you know, placed us on this path of going back, returning humans to the moon, which right now, fingers crossed under um, President Biden will remain the case. I think for private players, it's really important to know that the streams of funding that are started under one administration will be continued. And, you know, companies don't operate on four-year life cycles. Like a four-year life cycle is, you know, just a, a blip for a company that's trying to get its feet wet in um, the space industry. Yeah, especially because so, you have to look so, so far ahead. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? So that's the thing. It's like when you're planning out, you're, you're sitting down as a space entrepreneur and you're like, okay, I am building a company that, yes, for now is going to be working on um, developing, you know, launch vehicles or landers to the moon or whatever. But in 50, 60 years from now, hopefully there's going to be a base on the moon. Okay, then I need to be doing, being, like, be positioned to have the technologies ready to enable whatever kinds of services people are going to want on that surface, right? You're, you're thinking about setting yourself up to constantly scale. And doing that requires right now a government that is able to say to these companies, to these players that, hey, in 50 years, there will be a lunar base that is run by the US government and we will require these services. And you can be assured that we will be the first customers. Here's a contract, like get ready to be able to deliver. And working closely with industry to do knowledge transfer and to you know get the people from NASA who have worked on the International Space Station for years and years and years to go to these newer, newer companies and share that information, share that learning. I think that's one of the main pieces um, for the, yeah, from the government perspective, is just like being able to sit down and say that we will need these things and industry, we will look to you to ser service, to provide those services. And as NASA, we will get out of your way and not act as a competitor. That is really critical. All right. Is there anything new on the horizon, pun intended, that uh, you all um, that, you know, you all are looking into now and, and or just, you know, that you find the most interesting about your current work? Um, yeah, I mean, the Axiom has raised quite a bit of private capital to develop the first commercial space station. I mean, that's going to be that's a watershed moment, I think, in the industry. And um, it's similar to you know, the development of SpaceX and SpaceX raising kind of its initial funding. I think there are people now who believe and 
can see a future of human spaceflight being commercially driven. And um, yeah, I think the, you know, you've probably heard about all of the recent flights, private flights that are going to be going this year and the next year. um, Now that SpaceX has the ability to launch humans into space. I think the fact that there are people willing to pay right now for that kind of service, even though the ticket price is like, you know, 20 to $50 million per seat is pretty remarkable. And I think we're all surprised in a good way that there is an appetite for private spaceflight right now. Um, That initial capital, whether that's like raising from investors or from these individuals like who have their private wealth and are able to pay for such services will be a really, really important source of funding for the industry in developing these future services. So I think that's, that is really exciting. I think we're all excited about the fact that human spaceflight is now feasible. Yeah. That development happened pretty quickly. I remember, you know, hearing years back that the prediction was, you yeah. know, oh, 2050, 2060 or so. And uh, yeah, and yeah, that, that just kind of came along, <laughs> yeah. but uh, it, it did just kind of come along. Yeah. It was amazing. To be your best every day, You need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the sleep number bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples... Temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.